Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. Welcome to the VanCast. This is weird. I'm going to be honest with you. This is feeling a little weird. I'm uh, as lonely as I've been since prom night, but I thank everyone for joining me uh, in this maiden voyage of the post-JPAT era. I've got a mailbag and we'll open that up shortly. And thank you to the VIPs. We got over 200 responses in less than 24 hours as you know we looked to replace JPAT in the aggregate effectively. And that's really what we wanted to do, you know, as we thought about what this show would look like, you know, and it'll look very different six weeks from now than it, than it will today with this one man pod. But, you know, as we thought about that, I, I realized that I didn't want to go dark right away. Like I didn't want the van cast to vanish just because J Pat left. I wanted to, as a declaration of intent, you know, keep going for at least a couple of weeks before I take some time this summer. And partly that's because I'm not on my vacation yet. Uh, you can tell at The Athletic, we've, we've written articles the last two days, still grinding away. Uh, I, I will go to the Sunshine Coast next week, though. I will take some time for myself, but not yet. And so I wanted the VanCast to keep going at least just to do a couple more episodes, uh, remain part of your habits, and I want to thank everybody for contributing. You know, this is the episode, this is the, like, this is, you know, it takes an army episode. We're going to need your help to replace JPAT, and you guys have delivered with a massive mailbag. I'm going to get to as many questions as I can over the course of the next hour. Uh, but first, you know, I figure in the proud tradition of one-man hockey podcasts, uh, really just the Bobcast, I, I figured I'd at least make a you know, foreign film recommendation on Netflix and discuss my favorite type of margarita. So uh, we'll do that on the other side, but <laughs> thank you for joining us. Thank you for sticking with me, and I look forward to relaunching the VanCast for you in the near future with something, you know, a little more fulsome, like a little more fleshed out. But today, one-man pod, mailbag episode, we'll see how it goes. All right, I'm just going to jump in. I I'm not going to wait. I'm just going to jump in. So... We'll start with a question from Bruce P. He says, Hey, Drancer, which one of Hughes and Rathbone are most likely to develop into penalty killers long term? Would suspect at some point they would like to have two lefty options at the back for PK duty. Cheers. It's a good question. Like there is a fit sort of not concern. That's the wrong word, but a fit that the club will have to work through in the fact that Hughes and Rathbone are similar player types. We're talking about puck-moving defensemen, guys who ideally would both play PP1, but won't because you got to have only one D. you got to go four forwards, one D on a contemporary NHL power play. 
So, you know, one of them's always going to be behind the other. And let's be real, it's going to be Rathbone, right? Like Rathbone is going to need to flesh out his game in a slightly different direction to play long term on this team than he might have had to in another situation. Like this happens sometimes. Sometimes you have to adapt not just to NHL competition or, you know, your game to be a better defensive player or what have you when you get to the show. Sometimes you also have to adapt to different types of roles. And when you look at Rathbone and his skill set, you know, you see the shot, you see the wheels. It's the offensive-minded, puck-moving attributes that stand out to you the moment he's on the ice. But this is a kid who also has fire in his belly. And while his defensive game's not as well-developed as some of his physical tools, as some of the way, uh, the things that he can do, you know, in the offensive end and in transition with the puck, I do think there's a fire in this kid's belly. I do think he's got the type of size where he can develop into a real two-way defenseman. Like, I don't see him necessarily being just a puck mover at the NHL level. Like, I think he's got more to his game. I think he can flesh out his game further. And I do wonder if eventually that can include, you know, the stationary defensive positioning uh, required to kill penalties. I I think he can do it. He'd be my pick between the two to do it, and not just because of you know he's the broader player or the taller player, but also because I do think he's the guy who's going to need to flesh out his game in a type, different type of way. Uh, Hughes, obviously, a bit of an incomparable mu- magician with the puck. He's just a different cat. He's a different type of player, and I don't suspect that we'll see him kill penalties, at least not regularly maybe at any stage of his NHL career. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But among them is you don't want Quinn Hughes like fronting shooters on the flanks and eating pucks. Like you just don't want that. And there's no, no one is served by watching Quinn Hughes block pucks. Not, not the ticket buying public, not Canucks coaches, uh, you know, not Hughes himself. So of the two, Rathbone, and honestly, I believe he can do it and probably do it pretty well. I've got a question from Andrew C who says, at what amount of retention on the OEL contract would the trade have been fair, in your opinion? And to this, I want to tell Andrew, I don't think the deal was unfair, to be totally honest with you. I mean, I can't even think of a comparable transaction in which a team took on $12 million worth of cap hits for players of the caliber that Erickson, Roussel, and Beagle are at this stage of their careers. Like, that is, you know... Uh, a poo-poo platter extraordinaire. Like, I've never seen a team receive that type of package, regardless of the futures included, while sending a top-line caliber winger in Connor Garland the other way, plus, you know, getting off of the OEL contract. Now, OEL is obviously, in the Canucks' estimation, a top-four defenseman at worst. Uh, Clearly, they've said that he's better. Uh, We'll get into that a little bit later, but, you know, at least a top-four defenseman. From the Coyotes' perspective, though, this was a pure liability dump, right? This was a, they, they were getting off of a $50 million liability, and yes, they retained $6 million of that 50 but who cares, right? That's a $44 million liability shed, and they were willing to pay Connor Garland and receive some futures to get off of that commitment. Um, frankly, I don't think the deal's far off overall in terms of value. Like, the cost of the $12 million in cap hits represented by Erickson, Roussel, and Beagle are just as massive as the overall cost of the Ekman-Larsen liability. It's just that the Ekman-Larsen liability goes longer. Where this comes down, what this comes down to for me anyway, is it's like if we reframe the question to say how much of OEL's contract would the Coyotes have had to retain to mitigate the risk sufficiently for my appetite, right? Were I in the Jim Benning chair? Uh, You know, that's sort of where we can begin to talk about it because fundamentally, I think this was a fair deal. I think the price was maybe a tiny bit off in terms of the futures paid, that portion of the deal. I I do think the Canucks probably, you know, should have been able to net a mid-round pick in the deal or something like that too because of how much money and term they're committing here to ekman Larson, But you know, fundamentally, I think this was a fair deal. At what level of retention would this deal have, you know, 
been something that I could have I could have stomached in terms of like personally, if I were a decision maker in terms of my risk tolerance, uh, you know, I think we're probably looking at something closer to three million, like five, five and a half. I think at that level, you know, by the time you bury him, if it really doesn't work out, you're looking at a four point four million dollar cap hold. Like that's still inconvenient, but at least I feel like I can manage that. Um, you know, it's better than a buyout at that point because Ekman Larson's still going to hold about three million. So my my retention level would have been, you know, closer to thirty three percent because of the implications in the final three years in the event that. You know, Ekman Larson's play declines in his mid thirties to the point where he's a bio candidate. If if the Coyotes were to retain, were to have retained three million, for example, of his deal, then you know you'd you'd have the option of burying him, which would save you about as about the same amount as a buyout would. That for me would have been the type of insurance that mattered. But if you do it that way, for sure you're not getting Connor Garland, right? Like for sure you're not finding a trade that rids you of all of your problem forward contracts and nets you the top line caliber upgrade that Connor Garland represents for the Canucks. So you understand why the shape of this deal was what it was. I think fundamentally it was not an unfair deal. I like it a little bit better for Arizona uh, because it's, you know, you always like it better for the rebuilding team that gets off of a bad contract. Like every time that team's going to win that trade uh, in the post trade analysis, but the Canucks ultimately landed, no question, the two best players in this deal and addressed both of their needs while reshaping their books. To me, this was a fair deal. It's just that they took on a little more risk than I would have recommended um, or have liked to have seen them take on, frankly, considering some of the uncertainty that you know characterized the first portion of this offseason in particular. Uh, with the Ekman-Larsen deal in tow, like this is a roster that would be very difficult to untangle in the event the trade doesn't work, uh, which is why it has to. All right. Eldon F. asks, by bringing on contracts for OEL, Pullman, and Pearson, did the Canucks simply replace the Erickson, Beagle, and Roussel contracts? Uh, ouch. That is, a, that is a very, very pessimistic take, Eldon. Uh, you must be a Canucks fan. Yeah, it, there's a risk of that. Like, there is a real risk of that. OEL is the, as the Erickson analog. Um, you know, I, I can see that. Certainly, we've seen his game fall off the last couple of years and really precipitously last season. The Canucks are placing a big bet here that they're going to be able to, you know, that OEL's going to be able to be a player. Like, at the very least, that he's going to be an upgrade on Alex Edler, right? Like, on what Alex Edler was at this stage of his career. Uh, if he can't jump over that bar, this deal is going to look really bad right away. Uh, but I do think he can probably jump over that bar. Like, I do think that this is a player who is likely to benefit enormously from a change of scenery. Um, I do think he will make the Canucks better in the short term. It's just that once he hits 33, 34, 35, you know, can he do what Edler did to remain effective into his mid thirties, right? Like as Edler's mobility declined, he needed to get meaner, Right. Like he became really mean at the net front. He became like a bastard to play against. And I say that in the most complimentary way that I can. Um, that's what you have to do when your mobility declines and you stop being the flashy offensive guy you were in your mid 20s, which Edler was too. Right. Like Edler was an all star. Edler was a, you know, on pace for 50 points, if not for an injury at one point. Um, you know, Kinnickman Larson retrofit his game to give him the same type of old man effectiveness that Edler had in the latter stages of his Canucks career. That's a big question for me. And if he can't, if he can't, if he can't remain a top four caliber defenseman through the life of this deal, the entire life of this deal through 2027, then yeah, there, there's a point where we're going to be looking at this as a hugely inefficient contract. Pullman and Pearson, you know, both of those guys, their deals take them to 30, I think to 32 for Pullman and to 31 for Tanner Pearson. So, you know, not quite as big a risk as the Canucks took on with Erickson. Three and four years is a lot of term, but it's not six years like the Canucks had with Erickson, right? Like the Erickson experience felt too long two years ago. And he had a year left on his deal. 
you know, I, I just don't think we're going to see Pearson and Pullman get into that type of like never ending story, riding a, riding a, um, you know, luck dragon type, um, millstone where it's just gone on forever. But yeah, I mean, you know, we, we joked in the athletic after free agent frenzy day, like we joked about it. We said, you know, 2023, Jim Benning was one of the losers of free agency because, you know, at that season, he's going to need to, you know, reallocate some of the inefficient money committed at the bottom of the roster to Tyler Myers, uh, Tucker Pullman, Tanner Pearson, and, and Oliver Ekman Larson to clear up the space needed to sign Bo Horvat. Like, we're just going to do this again in two years. Um, and there is a real chance of that, although I do like Pearson as a player. Uh, I do. I've, I've enjoyed covering him. Um, you know, I do think he's a little bit different from the the scale of the risk that OEL represents, and certainly than Pullman, who, you know, I have time for on a $1 million contract. I just am really nervous about committing that type of term and treasure to a player that I see as a bottom, bottom of the lineup contributor. But obviously the Canucks evaluate him and, and see him higher up in the lineup than that. Uh, we'll see if they're right. It's a it's a big whopping bet, even though the cap hit committed at two point five per year, you know, is relatively conservative or at least pedestrian relative to the scale of some of the other bets that you mentioned. You know, Beagle at three, Roussel at three. Um, those are those are a, of a different type of magnitude in my view. Jason J asks, considering there have been more allegations against former number eighteen Jake Vertanen in and in brackets it says reported to Van PD. And I want to note here, the, the Vancouver Police Department and the Athletic did ask, would not confirm whether additional uh, claimants had filed a police report against Vertanen over the course of, um, you know, their investigation. They, they refused to confirm that for us last week. Uh, and of course, we submitted the request in the wake of, you know, some further details posted on a closed survivors forum. Uh, run off of Instagram. And in that post that made these comments, that closed survivors forum indicated that that post was for public consumption and gave explicit permission to anyone who subscribes to their channel to post it on Twitter, which is the reason that I feel comfortable giving this background. I otherwise would not surface, um, you know, anything from, from that page. Um, why didn't the Canucks terminate his contract? Jason J continues rather than buy him out. Is this the reason the investigation with the Canucks is continuing and could a termination still be available to them? This would have set more of a moral end to his tenure based on his alleged behavior in Vancouver than a buyout. This is a complicated one and I want to answer it delicately because there is a Vancouver Police Department investigation ongoing. The Canucks have indicated that their internal investigation is ongoing and this is a matter of you know, in front of the civil courts in Kelowna. And Vertanen has filed court documents in that proceedings, um, you know, claiming innocence, right? And and that's an innocence that he's entitled to, of course. The fact is, is that this process is likely to play out slowly, right? Like the, the wheels of justice move slowly. And for the Canucks, they needed a hockey solution, frankly, to a moral issue. And that's what the buyout is. Like, that's what the buyout is. The buyout is a device that freed up 2.5 million in cap space for them this upcoming season. And that 2.5 million in cap space is crucial, like absolutely crucial to what they've accomplished this offseason and will continue to be this month, especially after Dickinson's Arb Award, because that $2.5 million cushion basically covers off Dickinson and still gives them the type of cap flexibility that they'll want to hold until the moment Pedersen is signed for risk mitigation purposes, right? So they needed that cap space. Vertanen's performance alone warranted it. It comes with a 50000 cap hit in this upcoming season, followed by a $500,000 cap hit the next season. Um, that, was a, uh, that was an option that was available to the Canucks on Sunday of last week, right? Like on Sunday of last week, they were able to just make that decision and end their affiliation with a player who struggled for them on the ice and who was embroiled in legal difficulties off of it. Um, that that was that was a hockey solution, right? 
I understand the uh, idea that could the club have waited? Was there a more moral solution to this issue for the team? Like, I understand that idea. But the fact is, is that to avail yourself of that, you'd have needed to wait on how an uncertain legal proceeding would unfold, right? And you would have needed to wait. Like, you would have, he would have held up cap space while that all unfolded. And then you only would have been able to terminate the deal in the event that the outcome was a certain certain type of outcome, right? Like, in the event that the investigations exonerate him or, or find nothing conclusive, right? Like, that's another thing that can happen. And we've seen it before. We've seen it, you know, I think about the Ben Roethlisberger case, right, where the DA came out and basically said, like, we don't have enough to lay charges or convict, so we're not going to proceed here, but here's the evidence we compiled. You know, it's ugly, right? Um, that, that basically happened in the Roethlisberger case. You know, if you're waiting on grounds for termination, like, A, you may be waiting forever. B, whether or not poor conduct has occurred or not, you may still never get it because that's the nature of, you know, these types of uh, of cases. Like, the you know, the, the legal system and a lot of survivors and and you know, advocates have pointed this out, like the legal system may not serve, you know, those who survive, uh, you know, matters of, of intimate partner violence, right? So uh, at least not to, not to the standard that some believe it should. And as such, you're taking on a ton of uncertainty and wading into very, um, like, to, 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 I, want, I don't want to say risky waters or anything, but like, I want to just note that you, this, would, this would be out of your hands, effectively, in the event that you were waiting, hoping that you could terminate the deal entirely. You'd be relying on things well outside your control. Whereas exercising a buyout, that was something the Canucks could do, you know, between Sunday and Monday, put them on unconditionals, buy out the deal. The total cap penalty is 550K over two seasons, negligible. It was a hockey solution to a, you know, legal and moral issue. And I, I, I mean, that's why I think it took the shape that it did. Um, and no, I don't think there's any chance that the club could then go back and eliminate their bio penalty. Like that's not how it works. So the club locked in a modest cap hit here in handling it the way they did. And, you know, you can completely understand why, but I, but I do understand why fans, you know, keep asking this question. The other, the other reason that I have been reluctant to address this one is that it feels so ghoulish to talk about like the cap implications of, you know, like sexual violence allegations, you know, like it, it's just, it just doesn't, it just doesn't matter. You know, like it doesn't matter. Um, the fact that so many fans, you know, their, their, their main piece of reactivity to this news is like, well, how does it impact my team is one of the worst things about covering pro sports. Like it's one of the worst things about covering pro sports and it's common and it's understandable, but it's also just like, give your head a shake. It's ghoulish. Um, it does not matter relative to the big picture, uh, which is that, you know, intimate partner violence and sexual violence are massive, massive issues. We need to work to eradicate them. And these issues also have been, you know, further accentuated, um, you know, further at the forefront as a result of, you know, some of the lockdowns that we've lived through and the stresses of the pandemic. And, you know, these allegations should should be taken seriously. And these matters should be handled more seriously than, you know, seriously enough that it takes a front seat as opposed to concerns about your club's short-term cap picture. So anyway, that's that. I'm not sure if that's a hugely satisfactory answer, but that's how I see it. And, you know, uh, that's how the Canucks approached it. All right. Let's uh, steer away from that territory. My goodness. I really needed J-Pat there. Yeah. Let's do one more. From Justin T., with the increase of speed and skill in the forward group, do you think Green's system will lean a bit more toward controlled zone entries, or will this new group just play a better version of the same dump-and-chase type of system we've seen the past while? You know, the Canucks do play a lot of that sort of north-south speed game. They, they go aggressively at teams. They lean heavily on forechecking to turn over pucks and create offense, and... 
you know, I don't expect the fundamental sort of principles of, of how Green's teams typically play to be altered. But he always alters his, you know, tactics based on his personnel. Like the Canucks have gotten more aggressive, for example, as they've grafted additional speed, um, you know, onto their team. Like they've, their forward forwards are faster the last couple seasons than they were in his first two seasons. So the team's played more aggressively in terms of that forechecking game. I would expect him to continue to adapt that. And, and one thing I'd note here too is, you know, Green hears and knows that the team's been too permissive defensively. And I think there's no question that he's begun to take it personally. (laughs) I think there's no question. And so, you know, I do think one thing we will see tweaks to is not so much the dump and chase or how do the forwards play. Like, I think the way that this team plays defense, especially now that there's bodies like Dickinson and Garland and, you know, like credible two-way bodies, older players, Pod Colson, guys who, you know, Pod Colson's not older, but Pod Colson has a good head for the game. Pod Colson is thought to be a really good two-way player. You know, there's been so many players that have had to come in and kind of learn the NHL game. Besser, Patterson, uh, you know, even Niels Hoaglander. And if you go look at Niels Hoaglander's defensive play toward the tail end of last season, like, I don't think it was as good as it was when he was fresher and more dialed in earlier in the year. Uh, there's going to be work to be done there, too. Um, and, and the Canucks just haven't had quality two-way personnel. But this year, with the roster that's been assembled, with the money that's been spent, with a veteran defender like ekman Larson, with Hamannick, uh, with Pullman, with guys like Luke Shen that, that Green you know likes and, and advocated for, frankly, internally, I think the pressure is on for this team to take care of their own end. I think that's one of the biggest questions facing this club. Like for years, it's been understandable to some extent why the the Canucks were so permissive. This season, it won't be. And I think that's not just an obvious sort of media talking point, like like a pressure point, like under pressure, Canucks defense. Like I think that's a real thing that Green wants to accomplish too. And it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. I like this one. From Jesse H. Hey, Drancer. Have recent RFA D-men signings, notably Miro Haskinen, Kale McCarr, Seth Jones, and Zach Wierenski, complicated negotiations for Quinn Hughes' contract? In the case of Jones and Wierenski, they were closer to becoming UFAs, but have the Haskinen and McCarr contracts entered the conversation in extending Quinn long-term? Is management trying to push for a bridge because they can't afford a long-term contract at CapHit? P.S. Thank you for your coverage. I love reading your articles. So, in terms of flexibility, the Canucks can afford, the way I model it anyway, can afford to go long on one of Quinn Hughes or Elias Pettersson, but not both, Right? I sort of model them out as having something like $18.2 million in available space to get their four RFAs done. Pedersen, Rathbone, or sorry, Pedersen, Hughes, Yolevi, and Dickinson. Dickinson's going to get done first, and, and the Dickinson one is locked in. Like, he's not going to get an ARB award that's high enough for the club to walk away from. So, no matter what, the club is going to need to commit somewhere between $2.2 to $3 million. Right, pretty wide range, but really, it's it, it depends. Like you can grind them down and keep it to a one year term, and it'll be more like two two, right? But you know, I think the club would prefer to get a multi year settlement here, so maybe it's three times two seven five, something like that. Anyway, they're going to need to use two point two to two point eight million of that eighteen point two on Dickinson. And once you've done that, you know, you're looking at something like sixteen four you know, 16-4 to 16-8 to sign both Pedersen and Hughes. Now, what do long-term deals look like for Pedersen and Hughes? I mean, the 
Haskinen and McCarcomps would suggest, you know, seven fives the baseline, right? Like m- matching the Drew Doughty, Aaron Ekblad second contracts would be like the absolute minimum, I think, if you're getting Hughes for something like seven eight. Now, could you get seven two five on a six year term, which would only buy out one UFA deal? You know, could you could you basically match his cap hit to Oliver Ekman Larson's and go six years with Hughes? Like I think you could, but the moment you've done that, you know, you take your sixteen point two to sixteen point eight that we've discussed is your space for both Pedersen and Hughes. Subtract seven point two five from it, and what do we have? Well, we have less than ten million, which is not going to be enough to go long term on Pedersen. And the same thing applies to this sixteen ish million. If we subtract the ten million that we could take to make a six-year or seven-year offer to Pedersen, right? It leaves us with six and a bit, which is enough to bridge Hughes, but is not enough to go long-term. So fundamentally, I don't think the Canucks do have the space to go long on both, but they do have the space to go long on one. And in terms of what the market for second contract defenseman has done over the past few weeks, it's hard to unpack. The fact that Makar and Haskinen both broke through like the Thomas Shabbat barrier, and really it's the Drew Doughty barrier, right? Drew Doughty signed a long-term deal anyway at 7.5 for his second contract back in 2010 or 11, in there, right? More than 10 years ago. And no one beat it among defensemen until Thomas Shabbat, of all people, in the fall of 2019. And we're talking about, you know, Eric Carlson didn't beat it. (laughs) <laughs> he was like an 80-point defenseman. He didn't beat it. Um, you know, Alex Pietrangelo didn't beat it. He was like 24. He'd spent three years slow cooking in the OHL and came into the NHL ready-made as the best, one of the best right-handed defensemen. He didn't beat it. Um, you know, you go on and on down the list till you get to Aaron Ekblad. Aaron Ekblad scores 10 goals every year in his sleep. He was the first overall pick. He won the Calder. If anyone was going to beat that, the Drew Doughty comp, it was Aaron Ekblad. Seven, five times eight. And then people spent years carving that deal for being bad. It's like, guys, Aaron Eckblad should have been the Jack Eichel deal. Like Aaron Eckblad should have reset the market for second contract defensemen. The fact that he signed at parity with a comp from eight years earlier and GMs complained about it, insanity. Still one of the most mind-boggling things I've ever seen in, in the hockey world. Anyway. Fast forward to the last few weeks, and we've seen the paradigm for second contract defenseman dynamited by Haskinen, signing a long-term deal at 845, crushing through the Shabbat barrier, and then Kale McCarr, 9-5, and only one UFA year purchased. That is incredible, but you know what? That, uh, that's also who McCarr is. Like, McCarr is incredible. He's a totally different beast. If you go back... Like, go back to 30 years of hockey, right? There are three defensemen, three defensemen ever, who have hit more than 0.7 points per game. Um, sorry, and this is since the, I think it's since the 1995 lockout, because I'm obviously not using the 80s when, you know, people could score without lifting the puck. And there were like eight goals a game. Um, you know, if you go back, though, 30 years of hockey, there are three defensemen ever who've hit more than 0.7 points per game in their first three years. McCarr is one of them. Adam Fox is the other. Quinn Hughes is the other, right? Like this is an unprecedented group of young players and they are going to alter the paradigm for second contract defensemen. Like what, what does a Norris winning Calder nominee second contract look like? Cause that's what Adam, that's what we're going to find out whenever Adam Fox signs this extension, he might beat the McCarr number, uh, which is incredible. So, yeah, Hughes fits in that milieu, and figuring it out is going to be difficult. But he's those guys aren't actually comps for him because he's a 10.2C black hole. Uh, that's important to note. Like, his comps remain McAvoy. You know, McAvoy at three times five. Um, he's scored twice as much, but McAvoy is the better defensive player. And that's the other thing to note here, right? Like, we all saw what happened to the market for defensemen. Not just in terms of extensions, but in free agency. But what were the types of players that got paid? Like, it wasn't Keith Yandel. It wasn't Shane Gostisbehere, who the the Flyers had to add assets to trade off of. It was defensive defensemen, right? When you look at Jones and Wierenski and McCarr and Haskinen, like, what got them paid? 
it was their two-way ability, right? And that's where Hughes struggled this past season. And that's where valuing him becomes really tough because he's scored and contributed and is on the high end of this group of players in terms of overall ability. But, but you know, how do you project his two-way game after a season in which he really, really struggled in his own end? Because that's what's really inflating here. Like, it's not just the market for defensemen. It's the market for goal prevention. It's it's the market for safe minutes being logged along your blue line. And I don't know exactly how Hughes fits in to that overheated market, considering his defensive struggles. So this one's fascinating. I'm really interested to see where it goes. The, the one thing I'd note, too, is for star-level players, right, when you're looking around and seeing other guys sign for this number, like, you know, you think of yourself as being a, as being a peer to those guys. I'm as every bit as good as that guy. If you're, if you don't think like that, you're never making it to the NHL. Like you're not an elite athlete if you don't think like that. So, you know, I do think that the one area where this is likely to complicate matters the most is the man management side from a Canucks end. And, and this again is why, if you were to go long on one guy, I would I would pick Hughes to be the guy to go long on. And, and there's multiple reasons for it, but among them is if you go long on Hughes, I think you can effectively match his cap hit to Pedersen's. Maybe it's 7.25, maybe it's 7.5, uh, but I think you can match the cap hit. They become your two highest paid players, and you tell everyone else that's coming up, including Besser, who has a $7.5 million qualifying offer, and Horvat. Uh, you tell them, like, 7.5, we can't pay you more than those guys. Those guys produce more than you. It is what it is. Um, that would be my approach. And I do think that that gets you, like, a six-year, six-time 7.5 million for Quinn Hughes. I think that gets you to a point where he's among that group, but he's paid less because he's only 10.2C, and you've only bought out one UFA year, but you're still buying, you know, all of his seasons through the age of 28. Um, I think you can live with that. I think you can live with the cap hit. So that would be my that would be my approach to Hughes and Pedersen. I would go long on only one of them. I would go long on Hughes. And the biggest impact of the inflated market for defenders on the Quinn Hughes deal, I think, is fundamentally changing the deal that he's going to be looking for, like what what he will be satisfied with. Because I think you can throw the McAvoy comps out of the, out of the water if you're looking to maintain you know a, a relationship in which the player feels valued by the franchise at this point. All right, let's go to Paul L. What's the whole story with Schmidt waving his NTC for the Jets? Just for clarity's sake, I dislike all the jokes and speculation. Paul, no, there's no jokes here. Like, we don't know exactly why Schmidt wanted out of Vancouver so badly. We, we don't. And I don't think he ever leveled with the team about it. He certainly hasn't spoken openly with it yet in public. Uh, it's a story that I think we'll we'll try and get in the years ahead. But But here's my sense of it from talking to a lot of people uh, around the situation, although not to the principal. Um, you know, I think that the trade from Vegas was a really emotional one, right? I think that was a really hard deal for a player who loved it there, had made his home there, had been part of that inaugural run, had signed that long-term contract, came up with general manager George McPhee. Like, I think that was a really bitter pill. And, you know, I think coming into a situation where the vibes were funky around the team, where a lot of change had happened, um, where the organization itself was cutting costs at, at every corner, like cutting corners at every corner, um, and then struggling, and then the team struggles, right? And then the season is massively depressing for players, right? Test every day, even on a day off, you got to go to the rink. You can't even get away. Um, Massive COVID outbreak uh, on the road, only in Canadian cities, right? Like weeks spent in Calgary and Winnipeg in the winter, unable to leave your hotel room, right? Like basically quarantined, only able to hang out in a, in a hotel. Um, I think that all compounded. And, you know, I, I do think there were some issues beyond that. I, I do think there were some issues with how the club did its business um, that he saw. I think his teammates were aware of his unhappiness. And so we get to the point where, you know, he didn't request a trade formally, but it was known by the organization that he'd prefer to move on. And honestly, I think the organization kind of felt similarly. They were like, yeah, you know what? This didn't work out. 
And so they worked together. Everyone stayed cooperative. No one poured gasoline on the fire in public. And finally, the Canucks were, you know, sort of on the one yard line with some deals that, you know, were to teams that were among the 10 on Schmidt's no trade list. And, you know, I don't think like Schmidt talked in Winnipeg and said, I never declined to trade to Winnipeg. And I think that's true. I just think, you know, his camp was not bending in terms of agreeing to deals to the 10 teams that he could deny trades to. And finally, I think the Canucks began to say, well, whatever, you know what? We think you're better than you play, than you showed last year. We're happy to bring you back. And I think that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Ultimately, ultimately, with some intervention from Paul Stasny, Schmidt was convinced to go to Winnipeg. And so he did. And the Canucks got a third-round pick and cleared $6 million in cap space, uh, which was crucial. Uh, they, they may have been overextended without that deal. Uh, certainly, certainly the Holpe buyout was largely predicated on the fact that they didn't have a Schmidt deal in hand yet. So... Um, you know, a big swing for the Canucks in terms of cap flexibility. And that's the whole story as I know it to this point. But obviously there's more there. And, and hopefully in a world with open locker rooms and, and what have you, uh, someday we'll get to the bottom of it. We'll go next to a question from Justin L. Oh, I like this question. Who will exceed analytics expectations this year? Ekman Larson, Seth Jones, Duncan Keith, or Rasmus Ristolainen? Ooh. Ooh, I like this one. Here's here's my picks. I've got two. OEL is one of them, and Duncan Keith is the other, and here's why. The two teams, and there's three. There's three teams that I think are the hardest to evaluate based on, you know, analytics in general, because the environment created by their systems is so dramatic. One of them is Colorado, right? Like, Go look at the analytics on guys like Jacob McDonald, who I like a lot as a 6'7 defenseman. But if you go look at his, like, war chart, right, it'll be like, he is in the 97th percentile. And it's like, you know, no, he's not. He's for sure not, right? Like, he's a, I think he's an NHL-level player, but he's not Adam Pellick, for fuck's sake. Come on. And, you know, all across the board, Colorado's players, like, they they played in, play in this high-up octane environment. That defense moves the puck like no one else. I think there's a lot of depth guys in Colorado who look a little bit better by the analytics than they are in fact. That if you got them, they might be useful third liners, but they're they're not the you know fringe top line contributor that it looks like based on the underlying data. The t- other team for me is Chicago. Chicago plays one of the weirdest systems in the NHL. Like they almost play roller hockey. They do these group regroups. Um, you know, they, they launch like set moves, uh, from behind the net, uh, their defensive system. I mean, their defensive quality is just an absolute mess. I just think the way that they play is so distinct, um, so constructed around the way that Patrick Kane likes to attack that, you know, especially with Taves absent, um, you know, their, their, their underlying data is basically a sore. Like I'd be very hesitant to say that a player playing in that system is this and won't be that elsewhere. Right. Like to me, it's impossible. I, I just, that is a situation where I think the team effects are off the charts. And that's why I think Duncan Keith, like I, I've, I've watched Duncan Keith enough that I've never thought he's not an NHL player. And I know his underlying numbers look like that, but I just don't think he's, you know, bad. I don't. I just don't think he's bad. And I think in Edmonton, for Dave Tipp, in Dave Tippett's system, playing the type of structured hockey that the Oilers tend to play, I think he'll bounce back. I Look, I don't think he's going to bounce back and be a star. I just think he's going to bounce back and be like a credible, you know, 4-5, 3-4-5 type defender, um, you know, for Dave Tippett next year. That's one that I pick. And Ekman Larson's the same. Like, the Coyotes have played Kitty Bar the Door right? Like they, they are, they are one of the most aggressive shell teams that I've seen in a long time. And, and look, that was, I think Rick Tockett building a system to fit his personnel, which included Ekman Larson and included Yalmerson and included, you know, Demers and Goligoski. Like he had all these veteran D and nothing up front. And so he figured he'd play defense only and it kind of worked. So, you know, Arizona's another team. I just think systems wise, they're a really unique case and you have to be a little bit careful sort of, especially for defensive results, ascribing, you know, this player is that based on this, which we saw there. 
because I do think of the environment that he's moving into in Vancouver, or you know, if he moved to 27 other teams, would be just so different that I think the team effects uh, you'd observe or you're likely to observe there, um, you know, need to be accounted for, like would be significantly different. So those are my picks uh, to exceed analytics expectations, and that's just based on my eye test view of which teams in hockey play incredibly odd, like incre- play, play an incredibly odd system of hockey. Uh, something distinct. All right. Joseph H. Hi, Drancer. Greedy will go for three. All right. Let's go, Joseph. Three. This is a lightning round, though. You're going to get quick answers. Is Ole Olevi a Canuck on opening night? I say no, but not because he's unsigned, but because I don't think he'll beat out Brad Hunt or Jack Rathbone for a job. And I think ultimately, fundamentally, Despite the fact that it would be the Canucks' preference not to do this, um, I, I do think he'll end up on waivers, and, and I think a uh, fifth overall pick on waivers, even with his well-known mobility issues, I think gets claimed. If Ole Yolevi isn't a Canuck, what does he get you now in a trade? I don't think he gets you a ton, because he's not waiver-exempt, he's not really proven at the NHL level. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think there's a ton of teams hoping to gamble on that bounce back. Although one team that I do think believes in the player and believes that he can bounce back is still the Canucks. So we'll see there. Uh, finally, is Besser an, a Canuck on opening night 2022? I got a lot of questions about this over the course of the mailbag, like a lot of fear that the Canucks can't afford Brock Besser beyond this season. Um, he's got the high QO, right? He's got the $7.5 million grandfathered QO uh, that, you know, that means that's the baseline for his third contract negotiations. But you know, the way I sort of see it shaping up is that the Canucks are going to have something like 13-ish million in cap space uh, in the tw- offseason of 2022, with priority signings being Besser and Tyler Mott and Jack Rathbone, who's going to be 10.2C and relatively restrained. So, you know, that that's Besser money right there. Like, this team's their big pieces are all signed. Like you need to, you need to go cheap with a backup for sure. You need to go cheap with a backup. Like you need Di Pietro to be ready. Um, and you'll need to go cheap on fourth line wingers, but obviously like who, obviously who doesn't do that? Uh, you may need to grind Jack Rathbone a little bit, depending on where Besser comes in and how well he plays this season. But you know, I think you can do Besser pretty easily and slot him in pretty easily considering this club's overall positioning and cap space in 2022 Besser is a Canuck on opening night. Um, thanks for the hustle this past, past season, adds Joseph. Thank you, Joseph, for your support. All right. Stev, uh, Stev, Steven. Steven V, but it's it's written Steven, like it's written differently. So that's why I took a sec there. Excuse me. Winner of the first Nux Kraken game. I'm going to pick the Kraken, and here's why. Canucks finishing off a six-game road trip in Seattle. For Seattle, it'll be their home opener. Doesn't that just scream schedule loss? Like, that's going to be tough. You know, too, with Jerry Bruckheimer in the ownership group and, you know, the Vegas Golden Knights guy being hired by the Kraken, you know, to do their game presentation. Like, the environment there is going to be insane. The show is going to be great. The energy will be massive. And, yeah, there'll probably be a lot of Canucks fans there, too. Let's be honest. But, but. I just think the way that that game shapes up, when you when you think about it a little bit more deeply, I think it's going to be really difficult for the Canucks overall to win in their first I-5, Battle of I-5 matchup against the Kraken. All right, from Derek B. You clearly take a lot of pride in your work. How would you describe yourself as a journalist? What drives you? What other reporters do you admire? Um, yeah, okay, so... I would describe myself as a journalist as being, you know, pretty technical, right? Like I think data, I'm data driven. I'm, I'm technical in terms of my interests. You know, I'm less likely to do like the Bart's people human interest story than I am to really get into it with a guy about like, you know, an equipment change or, (laughs) or what they're working on with their shot or, you know, their nutrition, their habits, what they're like in the locker room. Like I'm more interested, typically speaking, in the, you know, technical aspects of hockey than most. Uh, cap management, 
transactions, you know, arbitrage opportunities. Like those are, I, I almost approach hockey like a business reporter first and then sort of uh, as, a, as a human being second. <laughs> um, so that sort of tends to be my approach. Uh, what drives me, honestly, I'm mostly driven, I think, by serving Canucks fans. Like I grew up a Canucks fan myself um, and I, you know, remember 2011 being really disappointed in particular by the coverage. Like I felt like the Canucks won two games and everyone's like, oh, it's a series is over. But the Bruins had played them really tough. Like they'd won both games by a goal took a last second regulation goal and an overtime winner, like a crazy overtime winner for the Canucks to win. Like, you know, I didn't see the Bruins as a demoralized team that was likely to slink away. And then the Canucks get blown out, just like shit kicked in games three and four in Boston. Everyone's like, well, Vancouver's done. And I was like, well, you know, like Vancouver played better than them in the, in the fourth game. They just, you know, can't beat Tim Thomas and the goaltending's not right. And like the Canucks are still a better team. This is not over. And then the Canucks win game five and, oh, they're going to do it in game six. And I'm like, man, they still have only won three games by a goal. Like this is not shaping up well. This is going to be stressful. And then of course it was. And, and I just, I didn't like the morality play coverage of the 2011 cup final. I wanted something a little more dispassionate, a little bit more analytical. And so I started writing myself. I started producing the content that I wanted to read. And, and I think that's still what drives me is, you know, to think about the viewpoint that I had on the game at that time and providing coverage that someone like me, right? Like someone like, like a hockey nerd would want to read about their favorite team. Uh, that's, that's fundamentally what drives me. What other reporters do I admire? I mean, I, I admire J. Pat a ton. First off, like I, I J. Pat's level of preparation and his notes, uh, the way that he goes about his business, the spreadsheets he keeps, the focus that he has when he's at the rink at all moments. Um, you know, that's something that I admire a ton. I admire Farhan Lalji a ton. I think he's really fair. I think he's really sharp. Um, I think he's a great broadcaster. Obviously, Jason Botchford was uh, spent years as you know, the model journalist from my point of view. Um, you know, I loved the entertainment value. I loved the cheeky style. Uh, I loved the way, I loved the showmanship fundamentally. And, you know, um, I, I, I mean, the list goes on. Like Chris Johnston, uh, Arpon Basu, two of my favorites. I think Emily Kaplan's doing tremendous work. Uh, Greg Wyshynski was like a formative, a formative um a formative hockey journalist from my view, especially in the puck daddy days. Like I thought that was just about the best hockey website that anyone could ever run. Um, so, you know, those are, those are sort of a, a short list of, um, of headlines, people who, uh, who I've viewed as being really influential for me uh, over the course of my career. All right. Going next to Nick a Nick a asks, Hey, Drancer, bending is getting extended. If the Canucks make the playoffs, isn't he? The answer is yeah, like for sure. And here's the other thing is is he, he needs to be. Like he needs to be extended. You can't keep soaring the incentives of key organizational decision makers by not giving them job security and letting them work lame duck seasons. Like if the Canucks make their decision after the season that Benning is still the guy to run another offseason, then you have to extend him because he can't work the last year of his deal you need him to be focused on the long-term future of this organization. So many of the Canucks' problems can be tied, in my view, to ownership. this ownership group's inability to manage the incentives of their managers. And, and that includes coaches, business executives, and the general manager in the leadership of hockey operations. So, yeah, if they make the playoffs and decide that Benning is their guy, they absolutely need to extend him. And in the event that, you know, they miss the playoffs or they make the playoffs but don't win a round and Oliver Ekman Larson really struggles and it's clear that the Canucks have put a cap on what they can accomplish with their core and the decision is made that the time for change is now, then, yeah, I mean, you need to make that decision decisively too and, you know, do some pruning in the Canucks front office. All right, we've got a few more. We've got time for a few more and I wanted to get into a couple. So... In particular, we got a question that I wanted to handle about Linden. And we always get these and people always like them a lot. And for me, you know, like them a lot in terms of like upvote. They want people want to know more about what happened to 
the Trevor to Trevor Linden at the end of his tenure. And so that's a story. That's a project that I'm going to need to put more time into because I've heard some aspects of the story here and there snippets. Um, I've heard some stuff off record, um, but I do need to parcel this out and, and give the VIPs a full accounting uh, because there's a lot to the story. I mean, there's no question. And at some point I will lay it out in full. Um, Painting with a broad brush, however, and without violating confidences, right? My understanding is that there was a time around the spring of 2018 when everyone's feet were getting a bit itchy with the lack of progress in the Canucks rebuild. And at that point, you know, it seems that Lyndon himself stepped in to preserve some stability, right? went to bat for the hockey ops leadership that he'd installed. And thereafter, right, I think he put together a presentation, you know, on, on, on how the Canucks could get to the mountaintop, like how they could summit the, the mountaintop and win a cup. And it required more pain. It was, a, it was a lengthier type of rebuild that the club was looking at. And I think that fundamentally what happened is that there was competing visions, right? One was go big game hunting in free agency. One was let's be bad for a while here. Let's keep our books open. Let's make some bad picks like or some good picks because we're bad. Uh, let's, you know, take our time on this slow burn and try and build a credible, durable contender for a decade. And that fundamental disagreement I think ultimately caused Lyndon to be sidelined to the point that while he didn't depart the organization until later on in the summer of 2018, by the time the market opened, um, you know, and the club signed Beagle and Roussel and, and on and on, I, I already think Lyndon's hands weren't really fully on the wheel at that point. Um, he, he'd effectively been uh, cast aside. And, and later he was, you know, it, it was said it was his departure was amicable but it wasn't, and Gary Mason later characterized it as a firing in the Globe and Mail at some point during the 2019-20 season. Um, uh, that was when the club was riding high, which tells you everything you need to know, right? Um, but yeah, so that's sort of the, the broad strokes, but I'd love to flesh it out with more details for you, uh, and I'll do so at some point in full at The Athletic and TheAthletic.com. Um, all right, let's go with this. I've got a couple more and we've got time for a couple more. You've, you've been, you know, awesome for sticking with us to this point And the questions have been great. Uh, Trevor C asks who could be a sleeper candidate to win the 12th forward job. The ultimate dark horse is William Lockwood, right? Like don't sleep on William Lockwood as a real option for the Canucks. I think he impressed during his two game cup of coffee last season. Um, the club really likes his speed. They think he's a good fit with the way they like to play. So Lockwood for me is dark horse number one. Uh, Bailey, Justin Bailey is another guy to keep your eye on. Like I think Bailey was basically on the fringes of being a regular before his injury last season. Like the timing could not have been worse for him. I thought he'd earned a ton of trust. Um, and I think he was poised to play or at least get a really extended run with the club for, for the first time that, you know, he's had in the NHL in years, like since his Buffalo days. And then he gets hurt right away. And so, I'm really curious to see how long a look he gets. I think he's got a shot, um, you know, at, at potentially making this team. Um, Nick Patan, we'll see. Uh, Nick Patan's skilled, right? Like Nick Patan's a credible bottom six NHL level forward. He just doesn't have a bottom six NHL level game. Um, if he can adjust a little bit, if he can be a little bit scrappier consistently in terms of hitting in terms of playing with that reckless abandon in terms of leaning less on his puck skills and more on playing a North South game. You know, I, I can see in my mind's eye, like a Patan Sutter Mott line could be pretty good attacking against the grain, especially with the way that Mott, you know, or sorry, especially with the way that Patan distributes the puck like that, that could work, especially because Mott and Sutter are decent finishers. Um, so that's sort of my short list of, of dark horse candidates to watch for. Fundamentally, I do think Highmore and Phil DiGiuseppe will battle it out between them. Maybe Justin Dowling gets into that mix. Uh, but of the Dark Horse candidates, sort of one layer beneath, I think those three are guys who can stage a pretty credible, make a pretty credible case. Um, 
Blake B says, Hey, Drance, could you tell us more about your background with Botch? Some of us only first heard of you during the draft a couple years ago when the infamous deviled egg story broke out. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's not a ton to break down beyond that Botch and I were, um, you know, on Canucks Twitter and I started writing and Botch started to boost my work. Like, I think he saw something there, um, saw something in that work and saw, I think more than anything that I was working at an insane rate. Like I'd become part of the conversation day to day. And so, you know, like one day I wrote, it was, you know, the depths of August where everyone's scrambling to figure out what, what to talk about. And I wrote this piece on how, you know, the Canucks shouldn't have made the Shea Weber offer sheet that in fact, making the Weber offer sheet made no sense because it wasn't the way that you actually get Shea Weber onto your team. And, you know, I get this, uh, I get a call and it's Botch and he's inviting me and he, he invited me on to do 1040. And that was the first time I'd ever done 1040. And from there, we sort of just kept a correspondence. Like I remember the first time before I went into a professional locker room, which was, you know, at, at Rico Coliseum for a Chicago Wolves versus Toronto Marlies game when the Wolves were the Canucks affiliate. And I pitched an angle uh, to the Vancouver province, which they had agreed to purchase from me as a special two covering that game. So I, yeah, I mean, that was really cool. And I send Botch a note and I'm just like, look, I've never been in a pro locker room. I've interviewed some CHLers. What's your advice? And Botch sends me back like an extremely generous note. And I've actually run this at The Athletic. If you go find the article that we did about the Botchford project and how the Canucks we're planning to honor Botchford. I actually published this email um, from Jason because it, it's just so in the spirit of what the Botchford project tries to encapsulate. But he wrote, you know, 300 word response with the t- tricks of the trade, Botch's guide to working a room. And, you know, from there, we continued to stay in touch, right? Like when he'd come to Toronto, we'd meet up and have beers. Uh, if we were on the road together, um, you know, he'd uh, take me out for beers or, or we'd drive to games together or, you know, he always had rental cars and I was always doing things on the cheap. Like I was always freelancing and just like frittering around the edges. And, you know, I'd, I'd have like 600 bucks of approved travel costs and my flight had cost 500. So I was sleeping on, was on a couch, like I was sleeping on some friends' couch. And so Botch would drive me to and from games and on and on and on. Um, you know, and we, we just had great times. Like fundamentally, whenever we were at the rink, um, we'd be laughing. Like we'd just spend the time laughing and, and workshopping ideas and uh, joking around. And, and it was a ton of fun and it meant a ton to me. And I learned an awful lot about how to do this job from watching him work, um, from the feedback that he gave me. Uh, and nothing mattered more. Like the, the, the thing I really remember is it was a seven-day or like a three-game Canucks road trip in New York. They were playing three games over six days and I went and I was staying in Little Italy and... You know, we basically hung out five days in a row at Canucks practices or games or, or what have you. And it was my first time writing for Sportsnet. Like, I just left the score and Sportsnet had bought a feature from me on the Sedin Twins. And I spent the whole week sort of going about, you know, I wasn't doing game coverage. I was writing for game coverage for Canucks Army. But for Sportsnet, I would go into the room and I would just work this Sedin angle as I went. And when it published, I remember... Uh, Botch retweeted it like right away, right away, even though I'd run it for Sportsnet and he was like a TSN 1040 guy and on TSN um, television and on and on, like he, he amplified it and, and had a nice comment about it and pointed readers to it. And it was just, you know, not only had he done it, but he'd, he'd crossed party lines to do it, right? Like he'd, he'd shared work done by someone who wasn't even a teammate, but was working for a rival outlet. And that meant a lot to me. Like I still remember that week in particular and that retweet in particular as just being, you know, a a testament to the type of person he was, the type of mentor that he was. Um, All right. I'm going to leave it there. I think that was a nice note to leave it on. You know, I I could get back into the weeds of technical hockey stuff, but we've covered a ton of ground here today. We've done Hughes. We've done Pedersen. We've done, you know, the gnarly mechanics of, of a buyout in the midst of, of legal issues. Uh, we've talked Jason, uh, we've talked, you know, media in general. Uh, so I think we'll, uh, I think we'll leave it here. Now, 
I want to say that there's tons of other good podcast options for you at The Athletic. Uh, the Athletic Hockey Show is, na- is new every Monday and Thursday this month in August. Join Ian Mendez and Haley Salvian and Sean McIndoe for the latest in the NHL only at The Athletic. And of course, we've got Columbus Blue Jackets General Manager Yarmo Kekalainen joining Aaron Portsline this week on Front and Nationwide at The Athletic. That's a good one to check out because maybe he'll discuss not just drafting Port Moody legend Kent Johnson, fifth overall, but perhaps, you know, perhaps the hiring of the computer boys, the old Canucks Army crowd, Cam Lawrence and Josh Weisbach. Um, isn't it amazing, by the way, that Columbus hires Cam Lawrence and John Weisbach and goes about doing exactly what they did over the course of the draft and, and free agency and on and on, like fundamentally, fundamentally relaunching their club, um, accumulating a ton, a ton of high-skill, high-value futures. Meanwhile, the Ottawa Senators hire Pierre Maguire and draft a bunch of Coke machines no one had ever heard of um, in their draft. It's almost like, it's almost like talent and executive talent matters in shaping the future of hockey teams. It's almost like winning in the boardroom helps you win on the ice. But but what do I know? I just live in reality. Um, Check out our comment section for each podcast episode at The Athletic app. And rate and subscribe to the VanCast on Apple. Five-star reviews, please. And comment Vroom, just for old time's sake. If you aren't already a subscriber, go to theathletic.com slash VanCast and receive a subscription for just $3.99 per month. All right, that's it. That's my first ever Maiden Voyage one-man podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope I didn't embarrass myself. Uh, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for sticking with us. I'm really excited to relaunch the Bandcast. Uh, you know, at some point over the next six to seven weeks. Uh, we'll do a couple more episodes. We'll do a couple more one-man shows, and then we'll shut it down as I take a couple of weeks off to just chill. Uh, but in the meantime, thank you for listening to the Vancast at The Athletic and theathletic.com.